Robots and Immigrants, Who is Stealing Jobs? Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics. This week, we're examining the ways we talk about automation and immigration and how this discourse shapes the economy. Hello, my name is Emily McTernan, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. I'm a new host on this podcast and a political philosopher at UCL in the department. So rhetoric around immigrants stealing people's jobs has been common in contemporary British politics, especially during the debates during the 2016 Brexit referendum. Meanwhile, rising automation has spurred discussion of how many jobs will be taken over by the robots. The ways we talk about these two threats of job losses can be strikingly similar and both pose questions about how the labour market might be structured in the future. A new book examining these discourses and their role in British economic and political debate has just come out. Called Robots and Immigrants, Who is Stealing Jobs?, It was published last month by Bristol University Press. It's by Dr. Costas Maronitis, Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at Leeds Trinity University, and Dr. Denny Pencheva, Lecturer in European Politics and Public Policy at UCL. And I'm also delighted to say that both authors join me now. Welcome, Denny and Costas. Thank you. Thank you. Denny, it would be good to start with some examples of the types of rhetoric we're discussing today. Your book looks at political and economic debate about the role of both immigrants and automation in the modern economy. What kinds of statements are we speaking about specifically? So we're kind of looking at a wide range of discourses and a wide range of narratives uh, around Brexit and the the so-called Brexit referendum, but also before that. So we're looking at narratives in policy, both before and after 2016. We're looking at political narratives and we're also looking at media narratives as well, kind of looking at how top-down articulations of identities and precarities have facilitated those kind of antagonistic understandings of us and them. So it's a wide variety of discourses that we're looking at across policy, across politics, and of course, across media. Fabulous. Thank you. And and one of the things you discuss in the book is the idea of the trope of cheap labour. Could you unpack that a little bit as a kind of concrete example of the sorts of rhetoric that you're discussing around immigration? Yeah, so cheap labour is a very prominent trope, very infamous in many ways. And we've tried to unpack what it means by looking at whether that means that people of migrant origin are paid less for jobs that they do, or that they're worth less in terms of jobs they do. So we've looked at different ways of conceptualising this. So looking at empirical evidence of the kinds of people that come to the UK to do different types of jobs or to study. Um, We've looked at the Posted Workers Directive as one kind of social legal way of understanding concerns around cheap labour and those discussions were quite prominent from kind of the early and mid 2000s up to the 2010s. So it was mostly about those types of of rhetoric and how we kind of organise and manage migration via policy. 
So basically, we're not saying that migrants are worth less or that they're necessarily paid less. It's just that there is a certain eradication of working and political rights that comes with that vilifying rhetoric that migrants are often subjected to. So they're talked about as being cheap without actually necessarily having to be paid less. I wonder if you could talk us through a bit, both of you perhaps, the parallels with the rise of automation technology. So what's the effects of the robots coming for our jobs on our on the labour market? And, and could you tell us a bit about how it gets discussed in, in modern political debates, perhaps in comparison to how you've discussed migrants as this idea of them being a sort of cheap source of labour and that undermining workers' rights um, in Britain? So what, what about the robots? How do they fit into your picture here? In 2017, when uh, uh, Philip Hammond was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, gave an interview on Radio 4, and he kind of like communicated his vision for the economy of the future. And uh, one of the key issues of his uh, statement, his budget statement, was that he wanted to see driverless cars in uh, the streets of, of, uh, of, of England, of the UK, uh, by 2020. Of course, you know, we haven't seen these cars yet, but uh, um, he was trying to communicate that uh, this is where we're going out. This is, this is a, a governmental aspiration. This is where the future lies. But he also made clear that lots of people will be unemployed here. Lots of people are going to lose their jobs, especially people working in haulage, transit, and... Uh, removals and all these kind of things, taxi drivers, and then it's kind of like associated with these particular professions. Despite all these kind of like metaphors of the British economy being a driverless car and all of these kind of things, it, it, was, it made clear that you know, the idea of, of economic growth, something which is very pertinent in, with, with uh, our current government now, uh, should be achieved regardless of the cost and ideally should not involve any human uh, uh, input when it comes to the, the actual labor. And the problem here is that the more humans you have, the more problems uh, uh, you have to face when it comes to working conditions, when it comes to output, when it comes to productivity, and, uh, when, of course, when it comes to their own rights. Okay, how many, you know, the... Uh, we're talking about the salaries, I'm talking about the working conditions, I'm talking about the pensions, and so on and so forth. And the idea again here is that uh, we need to achieve growth. Growth is kind of like a one-way street. And uh, the other thing that we have to deal with is kind of like chronic low productivity. And, you know, the input of machines, and this kind of like objective character of technology, that technology is not this or that, doesn't have some kind of ideological character or orientation. Technology should be uh, seen uh, across the political spectrum as something kind of uh, objective and non-ideological. If people are going to lose their jobs, well, that's the price that we have to pay. But one of the main themes of the books here is not the actual uh, implementation of automation in the labor market. Uh, one of the key themes of the book, if not the key theme, actually, is the threat of automation. That, you know, what happens when you have been told that your job is about to become obsolete? So we're arguing here that the threat of, full, of, of a fully automated economy serves as a specific instrument to govern the working population. The things that you have to do 
in order to keep your job. So if you don't want your job to be stolen by a robot, you have to be more obedient, you have to be more productive. And the, you, the other thing, of course, is that you always have to be trained and retrained in order to meet the demands of uh, a, a new uh, economy. So the idea is that what happens to the people who are not familiar with a certain uh, uh, technological advantage? They have to be trained. If they're not trained, they're going to be permanently excluded from uh, the, the labor market. Another theme, another which is actually a case study that we're dealing in the book, is a campaign again launched by the government soon after the pandemic. And they had a girl called like Fatima. And uh, Fatima was wearing her uh, ballet gear. And the government again said that uh, Fatima is going to have a job in cybersecurity. She just doesn't know it yet. But and then there was this kind of like a uh, uh, slogan of retraining. And then we had another indication of how government sees this kind of like technology or this kind of like automated economy, that certain things are not worthy in a contemporary economic and social landscape because they do not necessarily contribute to either the, the, you know, the productivity or to our economic growth. So ballet, or the arts generally speaking, it's not something that you know, Fatima, you know, the character of this particular campaign, should uh, engage with. And her job is, you know, li- and her future lies in cyber security. So on one hand, we have this threat of automation that you know you constantly live with the threat that your job will be automated and you have to do your best in order to maintain some uh, decorum of, of dignity and you know and employment and the other thing is of course the idea that how certain activities professional or not have to be sidelined for the purpose of serving the ultimate goal of of a, of a technological either utopia or, or dystopia Thank you. Those are great examples. I wonder if I could ask a bit more about the parallel you're seeing with that first theme you were drawing out there, the theme of the higher productivity, the the better type of worker that a robot would be, and the immigration rhetoric. So I think you see some parallels, don't you, with the idea that migrants can sometimes be seen as harder or better workers. Um, and, And is that one of the parallels that you're drawing out in the book? We did see a lot of that uh, in different types of evidence we looked at. And the the kind of the the similarities between those narratives was quite striking, really, because you have, we know that migrants tend to be vilified a lot more and a lot more aggressively and a lot more explicitly. But at the same time, there was lots of evidence that we found in policy, kind of political rhetoric, in in media statements of saying, well, they just work harder, that, you know, they're over 50% more productive than our well-meaning but slightly work-shy British uh, workers. Uh, And also we can't afford to automate because that's just really expensive. Technology hasn't been tried yet. We can't afford. There is no kind of clear government guidance or investment or kind of low interest plans to support automation in agriculture. And migrants are just great. They don't complain. They work hard. You can push them as hard as they can go. And there's always more where they come from. So it was that kind of very dehumanizing work ethic centric narrative that seems to be quite prominent Um, but it was an interesting difference if I may slightly stray from your question Uh, and that was kind of as as Costa said the threat of the abstract discourse of automating a job versus kind of 
the very mixed rhetoric that we have in terms of how productive migrants are, but also how politically and socially problematic and undesirable they could be. So those discourses are quite intertwined. We've tried to unpack those kind of interconnected narratives as much as we could, uh, but it was a lot rich, I suppose, in terms of um, the kind of arguments that we, we had to deal with. And, and in the book, you draw a link between this rhetoric around migrants and the robots and the economic system known as neoliberalism. So that's a term with different definitions. How exactly did you conceptualise neoliberalism? Uh, yeah, I mean, we didn't really conceptualise it. I think we kind of mapped out how it has been uh, conceptualised. I think I'll leave Costas to kind of elaborate on our more kind of Foucauldian understanding of it and the two different subjectivities that we think are related to kind of the resurrection or rather the agility and the resilience of Homo economicus. But we do talk about its historical origin in the 1930s as a kind of an economic right-wing type of school that kind of focuses around the importance of a free market, as in free from political interference, and kind of trace that uh, moving forward towards the 1970s when that implementation was a lot more political and a lot more conscious and done by politicians from across the political spectrum. So it's current what we argue entrenchment in how we think and do politics and policy. And of course, there, there's an interesting thing about this kind of like excessive use of, of uh, neoliberalism because, you know, it, it is used as a slur and, you know, no, no neoliberal would describe themselves as neoliberal, of course. And uh, one of the things that uh, kind of um, made us think here about this kind of use of neoliberalism is the prefix neo here, you know, of, of how new neoliberalism is. And if we talk about, for instance, in, in uh, the 30s, you know, 1930s onwards, where the neo was attached to, to, to liberalism as kind of a new approach to this kind of like central planning. Then as Denis said, you know, from the 70s onwards, it became some kind of like uh, a canonical uh, economic and political um, uh, approach. What is very interesting here is that when, when we just, you know, talk about neoliberalism, we're talking about the primacy of the market over the state. That's one uh, understanding. Or to be more accurate here is that, you know, of how the state kind of like facilitates the market. And this is, this is the reality that uh, we live in. But uh, uh, an interesting case here about this kind of, you know, neoliberalism, the prefix neo here, is that it depends on, on specific uh, political, economic and social settings. So, for instance, after the financial crash in, in, uh, in the Eurozone, the solution was to be found in neoliberalism. So this kind of like blanket approach to privatizations, a blanket approach uh, for the state to act some kind of like an estate agent and kind of like selling off like public assets and so on and so forth. Here, we've done all these things. So, uh, and we've been doing them since the, the late 70s, okay? And there's nothing else to do. Here we have neoliberalism here has become like a crumbling system. Like uh, it's quite old. It's a very tired system. And what we found interesting in the book is that this kind of desperate attempts either to make it relevant or to preserve it in sub-shape or form. And of course, we have this 
ideas here of, of, of this kind of like backlashes against uh, uh, neoliberalism, namely with this the idea of national populism, that, uh, no, we have to reinstate the primacy of the nation over the economy. And, you know, it took, it took some shape or form uh, during the, uh, the, the, the Brexit debate. And, of course, when it comes to the labor market, that it needs to be more restricted, more controlled. And the, the you know, immigration was seen as part of this kind of like a neoliberal logic. But as, as Danny said, one of what we wanted to do here was also to see that how this neoliberalism historically and currently manifests itself and manifests itself through the construction of uh, specific subjectivities. You know, where, how can I find this neoliberalism? Where can I see it? And we focused on, on the construction of these like subjectivities. And in the past, we had this idea, we think about like Thatcherite politics, of a heroic individual, usually a man, but also can be like a woman too, a, a heroic who can manipulate the market, can control the market and the price system, knows where to invest, how to find jobs, not particularly fixed in one place, and so on and so forth. So... There was this, this, the individual could like invest in themselves to do uh, better. And then we started kind of thinking that this thing doesn't apply anymore. And the new neoliberal subject, you know, the homo economicus, as Danny pointed out, is actually a rather sad subject, that it's not heroic at all. It's a subject that is always kind of like in fear of losing the job, of how to pay the mortgages or the gas bills and all these kind of things. And the idea is that is in a constant mode of uh, uh, survival, either as a national subject, as a British homo economicus, or as a foreign uh, subject, as kind of like a, even a foreign or xeno homo uh, economicus. So just by looking at this kind of like a figure or a kind of like a social type, you know, of what is the subject of um, of, of of neoliberalism. Uh, enables us to trace the kind of the, the, the history and uh, political economic adjustments of what we call uh, neoliberal. I just wanted to add because it, it is a really fascinating discussion and uh, we do talk a little bit about all those kind of historical and sociological debates about the death of, of neoliberalism and how it's done for and we have to move forward or we have to move in a different direction. But it's just surprisingly agile and you know, even if we listen to the news in these sort of times, uh, the way that our current Prime Minister, Liz Truss, is talking about the economy, it's just a very bizarre kind of revival of a 1980s kind of version of neoliberalism or Thatcherism of some sort. The discussion of anti-growth coalition, like we all know what growth means, we all agree on what it means, we all know it must happen, it's inevitable, it's unobjectionable, we just have to collectively push. Because neoliberalism also means that we self-train and we tell ourselves what is our value based on what the market rewards. So we adapt our behaviours and we adapt our wants and desires according to what gets rewarded and what gets punished by the market. So you also have that very toxic and sometimes very abusive relationship that you have between the individual and the market and how that is being discussed on that kind of top political level as well is was quite interesting uh, to see because the current debates are about you know growth 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 etc 
self-employment is great, make money. Uh, but also we want more progressive immigration policy, which is not very Thatcher. Uh, it's kind of it's a little bit of a new labor sort of twist on things. So it's a very adaptive, very agile, very difficult to pinpoint discourse. Uh, so I think that's one of the points that we were trying to make in the book. It's not the same thing. It's not the same new liberalism from the 1930s. It's not the same new liberalism from the 1970s. But it's always there. Like the main kind of facets are there, but they're constantly adapting and kind of tormenting people into feeling anxious and optimistic about their lives and their prospects of self-realization at the same time. So there were two different things coming there. So there was one saying it's a tired old system. Maybe we can see something like the Brexit um, debate and what happened as a kind of attempt to claw back from the global neoliberal order, right, to sort of firm up your borders, to be, you know, there was a left-wing argument for Brexit after all that said, well, if you don't have such migration, then we'll be able to improve the conditions of the workers. And that seems like a pushback against neoliberalism. But then I'm also hearing that it's this endlessly recreating doctrine that, in fact, it finds a way back, that it turns the, the worries around migration. The worries. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, obviously, I'm happy for, for Costa's comments as well. But it, it seems to me that it's very fluid and very um, disembedded in many ways, because the current government has very conflicting views to put it diplomatically, about economic growth and about migration policies. And when you listen to Lee Strauss and when you listen to Home Secretary, you think, how are you two working together? Like, you kind of articulate so many different discourses at the same time. Uh, and none of them really make a huge amount of sense, but it kind of shows how immigration remains instrumental for sustaining economic growth. And that kind of dehumanization of the migrant body as being valuable only in as much as it could produce labor output. And it doesn't really have any rights. You know, people, you know, have they don't have to vote or join unions or anything of that sort. But also the, there hasn't been much discussion about automation. It's mostly about using post-Brexit immigration opportunities, whatever they might be, to boost growth and to keep prices as low as they could be for basic goods and services, but also of just reducing anti-growth measures, uh, which I assume are related to any kind of sustainability or collective bargaining policies that or attempts that might exist. So neoliberalism continues. I'm, I've got, I want to ask maybe one or two more follow-ups about the role of neoliberalism and this rhetoric um, and what, what's going on here. So, so someone might think, that the phenomena we're discussing today aren't the product of an ideology, but instead merely the byproduct of globalization and technological change. So what would you say to that? Well, I would say it's both here, because we do have, you know, we should take these ideas seriously, ideas as, you know, as they have been emanated from, you know, think tanks and, uh, uh, um, and, and uh, universities and so on and so forth. But also the very idea here of how these ideas have been implemented across uh, the world and uh, mainly how they have been implemented in, in specific uh, social uh, and, and national uh, settings. So that's why, for instance, you know, in, in places like, for instance, like France or Italy or Greece or Spain, the idea of, of, of a neoliberal economy is still rather uh, fresh 
it has this neo into it because up until recently the state had a pivotal role to play in the management of the economy okay and even now it is of a sort of a taboo to talk about a liberalization of of um, the labor market and all these kind of things or uh, the age limits for a pension and so on and so forth so uh, it, it it depends on on uh, uh, where we are but when it comes to globalization here we also have to uh, remind ourselves the idea that you know the power of the corporation and you know the glo- you're very right to raise the issue of globalization because sometimes this kind of like national um, uh, political economic settings uh, are, are losing their, their relevance or they're losing their own power. So if you think about like an Amazon warehouse, for instance, the Amazon can operate as a state within a state. They can set up their own internal policies, their own internal directives, which uh, sometimes are in line with, with state policies. Sometimes they're completely antithetical. So... But the, the the very desire to you know uh, you know for countries to host an Amazon warehouse or to host an Amazon operation would make them disregard anything any any sort of kind of uh, value that they have when it comes to the dignity of uh, work. So, for instance, we have cities uh, bidding to host Amazon warehouses. So it's some, some kind of like an achievement. Okay, and of course we can see this thing with. The, the conservative government's fixation with free ports. So you set up this kind of like super liberal free you know, economies uh, within the state, but they operate under a completely uh, different uh, regime. So, and, and what is interesting about this idea here is that uh, for, for many, many years, we, we were accustomed to, to examine the, the, poly, the state and the markets are something two different things, and you know for for very good reasons. You have like celebrated economists like Polanyi, for instance, in the Great Transformation, when he talks about the state and the markets. But we also have to take into account what happens when these kind of like markets or the corporations where these markets operate in behave like a state. You know they have become the state in many respects, from te- te- uh, from like especially the. Te- technology-oriented companies, but other companies too, with you know, petroleum and so on and so forth, they have become the state. And we have reached this kind of like conclusion here that is what is good for the corporation is good for the state or the nation. What is good for the state or the nation is good for the corporation. So they, they, they have borrowed each other's slogans and uh, the, their interests have kind of like uh, converged. So we can see, for instance, why certain kind of like corporations here that they, they align themselves with the state and the logic of the state. If we think about like Central Europe, for instance, think like Hungary, okay? We always assume Hungary is some kind of like an outside in the European Union because of Viktor Orban. But when it comes to Audi and when it comes to the German uh, manufacturing companies, there's not a problem at all. So because the interests of Audi are the interests of the Hungarian economy, the Hungarian nation, and so on and so forth. And uh, so it's very interesting to, to see, to examine an idea that has emanated from the celebrated economists and the think tanks and the universities, and how this kind of like idea uh, materializes in, in this kind of uh, different political and chronological you know, uh, settings too. 
There's something else that I kind of wanted to briefly uh, mention in kind of uh, response to your question. Uh, I also agree that, you know, that kind of resilience of neoliberalism is both kind of related to ideology and to the advent of globalization. Uh, but there's also that relationship with the Cold War era and the importance of the ideological confrontation between the global East and the global West. So that kind of economic setup uh, was very much what we think of as, as being new neoliberal nowadays but it was also as an identity kind of deeply entrenched as something that is not the soviet union that is not the planned economy something that is very organically embedded in a relationship with democracy so you can't have not a free market and a democracy you have to have either one or the other and that kind of ideological standoff is something that is very much alive and kicking in central and eastern europe nowadays because political left and right are reversed. So, for example, you're more likely to be a right-wing person if you support human rights, LGBTQ, uh, um, environmental issues, etc., and you want smaller state, less regulations on the economy, etc. Whereas if you want the state to be involved, if you want social policy, if you want higher pensions or maternity leave or any of those things, you're kind of labeled a communist, and that time is gone. And that's also used as a trope to kind of purge trade unions where they were actually very strong, probably stronger than in many Western European countries. That kind of historical ideological standoff continues to help us legitimize neoliberalism because we think, well, if you take that away, then we lose our democracy and we can't lose that. So that's kind of another aspect of that discussion that I think is important to talk about. Right. So with all of those different ways in which neoliberalism can be enforcing itself and the different manifestations across different countries, I wondered if we could turn to the discussion that appears in the last chapter of the book, where you talk about UBI or the idea of a universal basic income that would be paid to all citizens, regardless of whether they work or not, as a possible ideal for the future, an apparent solution as well, of course, to job insecurity and the rise of automation. So rather than people then being impoverished, in fact, we'd all have a universal basic income. And so we wouldn't need to worry if we lost our jobs because we'd have the money to support ourselves. And the idea that this could then create a sort of free flow of different ideas that people might have about how they want to spend their time and what productive, productive activities they may wish to pursue. But you express some hesitations about the universal basic income as a solution for all of these ways in which neoliberalism might be functioning. Could, could you tell us, uh, tell our listeners about how you see the promise and problems of a universal basic income, especially as a response to the worries about jobs being taken? Well, we kind of, we have to look at universal basic income. It's something that has been discussed, especially during COVID and in the aftermath of the lockdowns. And it seems to kind of make its way to public discourse ever so often. And I think on some level, it is a very kind of visceral response to job insecurity, to the changing nature of work and the fact that we can no longer assume that work is safe, regardless of, of, of how you work. Um, so some of the promises of UBI in terms of inclusion, in terms of basic sustenance and the ability to have a little bit of free time. So not all of your time needs to be sold for a wage. So you can have a little bit of independence. So our character Fatima that Costa spoke about earlier, 
might be actually able to do things that she enjoys doing rather than having to learn how to coach in her 30s. And, you know, there is that kind of optimistic promise about UBI. Uh, the scepticism for us, I think, comes from the fact that it's not really universal and it's not really basic and it's not always income. Uh, and sometimes we've kind of looked at different schemes, if even if they're not called UBI, they're kind of to the same effect in different countries and across the world. So, for example, we kind of look at the example of kind of ongoing small sum payments that go to indigenous populations in North America. We've looked at kind of development type basic income going into uh, kind of impoverished households in parts of, of sub-Saharan Africa and parts of South Asia. We've also looked, of course, at, at the case of Finland and Spain, where universal basic income was rolled as an experiment, a time-sensitive experiment that was meant to help people get back into work. So none of those examples are really universal basic or income. So for the most part, within the European context anyway, UBI experiments have been used to buy people some time to retrain, readapt, and then go back into the labor force because we, we don't seem to be able to imagine a world without work or without wage employment. Um, and it has had mixed effects in terms of how effective it is. And also in Wales, there was a trial fairly recently with young people um, 18 to 21 or something of that sort. And again, a very small demographic, so it's not, again, universal. And the, more often than not, it tends to be used as a form of social policy that targets particular social demographic groups for a particular amount of time. But it also seeks to achieve an effect. So you're kind of accountable for that money you're receiving. And you need to do something with it. You need to kind of demonstrate some kind of output uh, for what you've received. So it doesn't really liberate you, it just buys you a bit of time for you to become economically productive again. And because it's not universal, it's very difficult to have popular support for that kind of measure to be properly rolled out. Uh, because you always have people who have internalized neoliberalism in the way that it, it needs to reward inequalities. And sometimes you lose out, but sometimes you win. And if you win, why should be paying for those who are not managing to survive or thrive the same way that you do? So in terms of implementation, there's lots of gaps and lots of issues that could actually create problems in terms of public and political support. So it's not lack of resources. We can afford to pay people and kind of free of their time. It's just that politically, uh, we don't seem to want to do that. And what are your positive proposals for what we should do if not campaign for a universal basic income, how do we respond to neoliberalism and its rhetorics around automation and migration? The th one of the things about the, the, the UBI here is that, of course, it, we, we need to stress that it, has, it, it, is, it is a neoliberal project in itself. And the idea, of course, is that, you know, how we simplify a benefit system. So instead of receiving this kind of like benefits, there is an income. And then with this kind of like income, uh, you can explore other possibilities in life. And of course, we had this thing with, um, with, with Margaret Thatcher in the 80s with the Entrepreneurship Fund or something, yes. But uh, when, when it comes to this kind of like implementation of, of, of UBI, and, and we see that you know, it started as this kind of like a neoliberal project, of course, here we can see that you know, the 
uh, of of how you know the acceptable limits of of neoliberalism and how certain kind of like countries or national economies or global economies will react or kind of uh, or reassess this kind of like neoliberal project or neoliberal um, uh, thought. So when it comes to immigration, we can see again here this idea of of the state uh, coming back into play because we need to have. Um, uh, a more, you know, who who is like eligible for this, like UBI? Should we have more secure borders, closed borders, where other people cannot apply to this thing? Okay, so it, it's a quite important thing to say that that you know, if it is universal, as it as it says on the team, who has access to this thing? And you know, can you have access as a non-national citizen or an immigrant or as a refugee and so on and so forth? That's another thing. And of course, the other problem here when it comes to this implementation of, of um, universal basic income is the power of the state over your uh, life. Because again, we have the state as some sort of like uh, a fund allocation manager, which kind of like controls people's lives. And the idea here with this kind of like transfer of cash, you know, again, it was, it was the Trump check it was their fellow, it was a stimulus package and all these kind of things, is that, you know, what, what, uh, what does the state expect in return? Some kind of like, you know, a docile worker or a docile citizen, someone who's, you know, you keep receiving money from the state, therefore you do not have any rights to strike or complain about housing and so on and so forth. So on one hand, we need to be aware of this kind of like potential of UBI to force us to think of a world without work, which is actually, it is very hard to think of a world without work. You know, housing, you know, urban planning, clothing. I mean, all of these kind of things pivot around the idea of, of what, you know, of, of, of where do you work and what do you do for a living? So these things are kind of like really, really important. Of course, how we monetize our uh, everyday lives. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we have to be, uh, you know, we have to be aware of this idea of, the, the, you know, of, of how uh, regressive UBI can be, because then we're going to have like a state. And we know that the state always aligns itself with the market. I mean, we do not, we have to go centuries back to actually see that the state does something against, the, the, you know, the particular market. So one of the things that we envision as some kind of like an alternative to this situation is, you know, for, for a renewed understanding of what we consider to be the common. So every time that someone has to be excluded from this kind of UBI based on uh, abilities, nationalities, or, or gender, or education, and so on and so forth, we need to have this kind of like renewed understanding of what is common. And when I say renewed, like constantly renewed, kind of like a community or a society that kind of always renews its idea of who we are and what we are in order to you know, either accept or reject uh, uh, people. So regardless of how positive UBI might sound, you know, we might, you know, we have to, as I said, consider it's kind of like neoliberal roots as a project and also that we might run the risk of granting too much power to the state as some kind of like uh, fund uh, allocator. So we're basically kind of looking at a bottom-up type of, uh, of social democracy, which we think is possible within the UK context. 
probably a bit more than in other uh, types of European contexts. So there is a little bit of optimism in what we're trying to do. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you for that. On that slightly optimistic note, thank you, Denny and Costas, for that fascinating unveiling of neoliberalism and the rhetoric of immigration and automation. We've been looking at a new book, Robots and Immigrants, Who is Stealing Jobs, published last month by Bristol University Press. Next week, we will be joined by Lisa James and Ton Fleming from the UCL Constitution Unit to discuss their new paper on parliamentary influence on Brexit legislation. Remember to make sure that you don't miss out on that or future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All that you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Emily McTernan. This episode was researched by Connor Kelly and produced by Eleanor Kingwell-Banham. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.